0: we got a lot to do because we are in the book of Revelation. If you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, for the month of December, we're in the book of Revelation, kind of the close, our thread series, uh, and taking a look at how Jesus' first coming uh, reflects also His second coming and, uh, coming and what's different between those and uh, and what's the same. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12. It'll also be up on the screen for you later. Uh, if you know what Revelation 12 is or you see the heading on there, you might be taken aback. It's a little bit different than what we normally uh, preach through, but it is in God's Word and it'll be good for us. So, I'm going to pray as you're turning there, and then we'll dive in. Okay. Father God, whenever we open Your Word, we don't expect just to read words. We expect to be changed because this is Your Word. So, change us. Father, Jesus, may we see more of You. Spirit, open our eyes and soften our hearts as we read Revelation 12. Show us more of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The classic movie, The Princess Bride, opens with a sick kid in a Chicago Bears jersey being visited by his grandpa who brings a, a special book. And the grandpa says, this was the book my my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father, and today I'm going to read it to you. And the kid is pretty skeptical. He asks, well, has that got any sports in it? And the grandpa exclaims, are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. And the kid replies, it doesn't sound too bad. I guess I'll try and stay awake. But as the grandpa reads and the movie goes on, the kid gets pulled more and more into the story. He gets invested in the characters and the plot until at the end of the movie, the kid says, well, maybe you could come and read it again tomorrow, to which the grandpa, of course, replies, as you wish. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Stories have the power to awaken something within us and to connect us with the deepest parts of reality. See, if I explain concepts like true love and revenge to you, you may be able to understand those things intellectually, but if I tell you a good story, you get to experience those things. In the Thread series, we've been walking through the Bible as a unified capital S story where all the threads lead to Jesus, and hopefully you've been able to see how the gospel can be found even in books like Obadiah and 3 John. From the creation account, to the fall of Adam and Eve, to the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, to the exile, to the coming of the Messiah, to His life, death, and resurrection, to His future return, there is immense value in looking at that grand, sweeping narrative of God's rescue plan to save us. But even so, there can be a danger in reading the Bible for the big picture story, sometimes we are so caught up in the big movements of God that we forget that we have a part in that story too. See, here's the key difference between the Bible and stories like The Princess Bride. The kid and the grandpa were not characters in the book, but we are characters in the Bible. We're not just observers or readers like a passive audience. We are living out this story So we don't simply want to understand the story of the Bible. We want to experience it from within, to know our place in this story, to tell it and retell it to ourselves and our children and our grandkids, because this is our story. And I don't just mean the story of Christians. If you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, did you know that you are in the Bible too? Or rather, the Bible talks about you and about me and about the God who made us. And if you are visiting, you chose a rather interesting week to visit uh, because we are spending, as I mentioned, the month of December in the book of Revelation. Uh, As Kyle mentioned last week, this is the place where all the storylines and threads come together. And in Revelation 12, the Apostle John sees a vision that retells the whole story of the Bible, but this is a story unlike anything you've heard before. This is no children's Bible. This is not bedtime reading. It is bizarre. Uh, if I were the grandpa in the movie and you were to ask me, and stars fall, is anything interesting in it, I would say, are you kidding? There's dragons and stars falling and cosmic power, archangels, war, floods, earthquakes, escapes, wrath, victory. If you just glance at the very first verse of Revelation 12, John tells us what kind of story to expect. Says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A sign, a symbol, a representation. So, what we're going to find here is not a su- sweet little summary of the Bible with simple, clear words. We're going to get thrown into an epic fantasy story with monsters and heroes. So if that is your jam, if you're a fantasy nerd like me, you're going to love this. If you're more the type of person who's like, I just kind of want the Bible to tell me what I need to do exactly, and uh, that's, this might be a little bit more challenging for you, but that's okay. As we're going to see, it's going to mix together themes and images from other parts of the Bible to retell this grand story. And of course, like every part of the Bible, it's going to bring us to Jesus. Now, before we dive in, you, you might ask yourself, why are we preaching on this passage at Christmas time? It is neither holly nor jolly. Uh, but the late Eugene Peterson said this about Revelation 12. This is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. So here you won't find shepherds or magi, stables or mangers, but you will find the coming of Jesus. You'll find Jesus' ancient enemy, the serpent from the garden. You'll find tragedy and triumph. And what's more, you will find yourself in this book, in this story. So, my hope for this morning is that this text would capture your imagination and give you fresh eyes to see the wonder of the story of the Bible. As we're going through Revelation 12, keep this main question in your mind What is our story in the, or what is our role in the story of the Bible? What is our role? What's our place in the story of the Bible? Revelation 12 has three distinct scenes that we'll take one at a time. First, the delivery room then the battlefield, and then the chase. All right, let's dive into the story. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All clear to everybody? Good, my work is done. (laughs) Now, remember this important principle that Kyle taught us last week. Whenever you read something in Revelation that seems odd… Assume that it's a reference to something that God has already said or revealed. Uh, I sometimes call Revelation the capstone of the Bible, because it assumes that you've been reading your Bible over and over and over again, so you can pick up on these allusions. But if you're like me, I often feel like I'm at the 101 or maybe the 201 level of Bible reading. Uh, On a first reading, we won't catch this reference to Ezekiel or that allusion to Isaiah, So, it'd be normal if you feel a little bit lost, but I'll I'll try and be a guide as we look at this first scene in the delivery room. Uh, Let's identify the three main characters that we meet. The most obvious one is the child in verse 5, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, If you read through the Psalms, when you come to the second Psalm, you'll see the clear reference to that rod of iron. And so, this is connected to the promise of the Messianic king. The child is Jesus, of course. It's the Sunday school answer. But why is he depicted as a, a full-term newborn baby? Well, the key is in the identity of the woman in verse 1. She is wearing the sun like a, a royal robe. She's standing on the moon. She has a crown of 12 stars. Oh, and she's very heavily pregnant, which if you've been coming to Rock Hill for a while is a very common sight in our church. <laughs> um As John's original audience read this description, their minds would have immediately gone back to Genesis 37. It's a very famous story where Joseph has a dream, and in that dream he sees his family, the the family of Israel, as the sun, moon, and the stars, especially because, as Kyle mentioned last week, the number 12 often evokes the number of the tribes of Israel. Or the original audience would have thought of Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah, where the people of God are depicted as a pregnant woman, They are waiting for the Messiah to come. They're groaning with the pains of labor and transition. They're given the promise of joy, but it's not yet here. She flees to the wilderness. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's a reference to the Exodus story. So, the woman is a representation. She's a sign, either of God's people as a whole or of Old Testament Israel specifically. And all of this, the woman and child imagery, it all goes back to one key verse on page 3 of the bible in genesis 3:15 god makes a promise to the serpent who had deceived adam and eve to rebel against god this is what god says to the serpent i will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring catch the child language there he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel it's a cryptic promise but it's crucial in the storyline of the Bible. A child of Eve, a human offspring, would one day fight the serpent and win by crushing his head even as that child receives a mortal wound. So, from that point, for the rest of the Bible, God's people and God's enemy are waiting for that snake crusher to come. It wasn't Cain, Abel, or Seth. Those were the direct descendants of Eve. And so we go, okay, so it's probably not her literal offspring as though, you know, a, a, a direct descendant but it also wasn't Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, and it wasn't any of the kings. You keep reading and reading, turning the page, waiting for every time a child is born in the Old Testament, you're wondering, is this him? Is this him? Waiting, waiting, waiting in birth pains and agony for the promised child who would save his people and defeat the enemy Let's talk about that enemy, the third character in this scene, the dragon in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We don't have to guess who this is. We're actually given his identity a little bit later in verse 9, so glance down there. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, So that cunning reptilian snake of Genesis 3 shows up, which shouldn't surprise us. You know, we have the, the promised child of Genesis 3, well, who's the antagonist of that story? It's the, in Greek, called the diabolos, the slanderer, the satan, the adversary, the accuser, the deceiver. As a dragon, he strikes fear because he is fearsome. As fiery red, we see his murderous character. The seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems, they would call back to mind Daniel 7. Uh, Seven, remember, is the number of perfection, and so it's like this enemy wants the numbers of perfection for himself. It's a false claim to the throne of God. Now, sweeping down the stars, that's a little strange. Uh, Most scholars agree it could be one of two things. It it could be a reference to angels who rebelled against God and joined the enemy's side, Uh, or because stars had already been referenced earlier, uh, referring to God's people, it could show us the enemy's main MO, which is destroying God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, as God's people are waiting for a child, waiting for a child, waiting for a child who will rule and defeat the enemy. The enemy is wanting to destroy children. The Bible describes him as working behind the murderous intentions of people like Cain who killed his brother Abel, a Pharaoh who killed a whole generation of baby boys, Saul who wanted to kill David, Herod who tried to murder Jesus and then ended up killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem and so on. This enemy opposes God. He hates God's people, and he wants to destroy the child of promise. Now, let's take a step back from all those details and illusions and and just look at the big picture of this scene. We're meant to picture a woman about to give birth, which is one of the most wonderful and vulnerable moments of the human existence. Uh, I have a picture up here. Uh, Melissa needed to have a C-section because the cord was wrapped around Julian's neck. This is a picture I took as they sat me on a bench and told me to wait outside the delivery room while they prepped Melissa, and then they would bring me in. Uh, I remember just sitting there, being so overwhelmed and and pretty amazed too at the amount of people that they were able to stuff in that little room. It was maybe the size of the glass room in the back, and just it felt like four dozen people were coming in. It was maybe a dozen, but uh, with doctors and technicians and nurses and anesthesiologists and all of that. And then finally, I'm brought in and I'm squeezed next to Melissa. And we're meant to imagine here that in that room also was the powerful, violent, bloodthirsty enemy waiting at the end of the bed with murder in his eyes. As soon as that baby's born, it's gone. And that was the experience of Israel. See, they had that promise, the birth pains. They had the promise of Genesis 3.15, there's going to come a child who will make all things right again. But it's not here yet. It all felt so fragile, so hopeless, so vulnerable. That's the tone at the end of the Old Testament. We've seen human beings, human kings come and fall over and over again. The dragon always seems to win. Is it ever going to come? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. But then we turn the page and read the first words of the New Testament in Matthew one, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Pastor Dean at Chester Park actually knows a woman who grew up Jewish and who was converted to Christianity by this verse. (laughs) You go, this verse? Really? Why? She she had thought the Bible was only for Christians, but she wanted to read it from cover to cover, see what it was all about. Uh, As she's reading, she starts in Genesis. She knows the Old Testament, so it's very familiar to her. But when she turns the page and comes to Matthew, when she read that Jesus was called the Christ, the Messiah that He was a son, a descendant of David and of Abraham. It all clicked for her. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He completes the story. He fulfills our longings and our promises. And He lived, He died, He rose again, and He ascended to heaven as the unquestionable proof that God keeps His promises. Verse 5, look at it again. Uh, She gave birth to a male child, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Notice that in this vision, we only see Jesus' birth and His ascension, basically the beginning and the end of His earthly life. Uh, This is a technique in the Bible called telescoping, where you give the bookends, and then you assume everything in between. So, Jesus' birth, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all in one, and through it all, the dragon tried to devour the child, but He couldn't foiled for once. He could not prevent Jesus from dying, rising, and ascending the throne where He belongs. So, here's the key point from this scene. In the first advent, Jesus came to fulfill the promises of God's people. God sent a Savior just as He promised because God keeps His Word. That is the joy and the hope of the Christmas season that we remember every year, Now, apocalyptic literature is meant to give us a heavenly perspective on worldly events. So when we see a nativity scene like uh, this one on the side of the stage, maybe you have one or multiple in your home, when we see that scene, when we see a baby born in a dirty manger, when we sing songs to the joyous coming of the incarnate God, John wants us to see that with new Revelation 12 eyes. He wants us to see how God's people have been waiting since the garden, groaning, crying out, vulnerable to a vicious enemy. But this baby would be the decisive turning point in the war between God and those who reject God. And it's that war that John sees next as we look at the next scene, scene number two, the battlefield. Let's read, starting in verse 7. "'Now war arose in heaven.' Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, Kyle mentioned last week that the chronology of Revelation is debated a little bit to understate it. Uh, So, some think that these verses look back to the time of Satan's original fall. Uh, Others think that it's describing his climactic defeat at the cross and at the empty tomb, uh, while others still think that it's describing the future. Uh, Regardless of where you land on that, most everyone agrees on two things. First, The battle between God and this enemy plays out not only in the human realm, but also in the realm of spiritual beings. And then second, the result of this cosmic conflict is that Jesus and his people win. Let's talk about that first point. The battle between God and the enemy plays out not only in the human realm, but also in the realm of spiritual beings. Now, that, that is often very intriguing for Christians. We're very curious about that. But the, the reality is that the Bible doesn't give us a mythology proper that explains angels and demons and so on. Now, some Christian traditions have imaginatively filled out that mythology. Uh, but in the Bible, spiritual beings are often background characters to the drama that's front and center for us, the drama between God and human beings. Or, or maybe a better way to say it is that spiritual beings have their own story that we are, aren't often given access to, except in little glimpses like this. So, for example, Michael, the leader of the angels on God's side, is mentioned about half a dozen times in the Scriptures, and we don't know much about him. Uh, he's actually my namesake. My parents liked the meaning of the name, uh, which is Hebrew for the question, who is like God? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, Nobody is like God. Ah, but the enemy, the enemy wants to be like God. John sees the enemy defeated and thrown away from God's presence out of the heavenly realm and down to earth. We'll see the implications of that in a moment. I want to point out one key thing that we learn about this enemy. His primary weapons against human beings are his words. It might surprise us for somebody depicted as a dragon, but just look at what he's called. He's called a slanderer, an accuser, a deceiver. Jesus said this in John 8:44. 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is why throughout the Bible, the advice given to you and me, to followers of Jesus in standing against the enemy in spiritual warfare is not take up the sword and join this cosmic spiritual battle, but rather believe in the truth, reject the enemy's lies, hold fast to your faith. That is spiritual warfare. That's our role. And despite His ferocity and His guile, the enemy is defeated, humiliated, exiled. Look again at verse 10. This is a declaration of victory. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. God's people, the righteous and victorious through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the critical and the crucial battle is done, and the end of the war is soon to follow. His time is short, it says, uh, one commentator put it in the realm of the, the courtroom, and this is what he said, "'The verdict has been given in the court of heaven. The prosecution case is rejected. The prosecution counsel is silenced. Only the defense counsel remains, Jesus, our advocate. The defendant, you and me, we are declared not guilty. There's no condemnation.'" And the archangel Michael is simply the bailiff carrying out the eviction order that was secured at the cross. I love that imagery. Jesus and His people win. But did you notice how they win? By the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus' atonement and sacrifice for our sins to give us new life, and by the word of their testimony, their profession of faith in the good news that I need a Savior and only Jesus can save me. In other words, we win by dying to ourselves and by believing in the gospel. This is a call to stand firm in the face of Satan's accusations by trusting in Christ's blood. He says this about you, but what does Jesus say about you? And it's a call to stand firm in the face of Satan's hostility by witnessing to Christ, even if that means death, he wants to harm you, so what? I have eternal life in the Son. That's the good news. But verse 12 reminds us that this war isn't yet over. It's just now the battlefield has shifted. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Our enemy is a defeated foe, but he is in his death throes and is looking to take down anyone that he can. The Apostle Peter describes him as a prowling lion. He's a wounded animal, cornered, angry. And so, as we approach this last scene, we're wondering, well, what is this dragon with a mortal wound and a fiery rage going to do? Let's find out as we read the last scene, the chase, starting in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That last line is a reference to the next chapter, but. We've got enough to discuss here, I think. This section has a lot of perplexing things in it that I admit I don't fully understand. And yet, I think the main point is this this is a retelling of the Exodus story. And we're meant to see that while the enemy is defeated, but he's alive still, God's people, remember, represented by the woman, we are both persecuted and protected. We are both persecuted and protected. The language of this scene is largely taken from the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh the oppressor chased the people of Israel and attempted to corner them against the sea. But God provided safety in dry ground, splitting the waters so that they could walk through it and into the wilderness. But as soon as they walked over the water, the wilderness is also a place of danger. It's a desert with no food or water. But again, God provides nourishment, manna, water from a rock, life itself for these people. The wings are a common image in the Bible of God's protection, and in the Exodus story, it's a really important image. When God has brought them through the waters and through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, this is what He says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. In the same way, God is rescuing His people again. Look again at verse 17, who does the enemy take his wrath out on? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, that's us. That's disciples of Jesus who keep the commandments of God. We do what Jesus tells us to do, and we hold to the testimony, the good news, the words of Jesus. We who are followers of Jesus are now targeted by an oppressive enemy who wants to sweep us away, who wants to break our faith and draw us away from obedience to God. Notice again, what are the dragon's weapons here? It's it's a river, but it comes out of his mouth. It's an important detail. He will not stop flooding us with lies and accusations, but God provides safety in the flood, help in our times of need, a refuge from those who chase us. In the midst of persecution, God protects his people. That is the main theme of the scene. And and since this whole chapter is a retelling of the biblical storyline from Genesis 3:15 up to now, we're now caught up with where we are in 2023 or close to 2024. Verse 17 describes you, the children of God who are chased by a defeated dragon, but given shelter under the protective wings. Of God. Now, there are still a number of things that I don't understand from this passage, uh, things that I wouldn't be confident enough right now to preach. Uh, for example, what's the meaning of time and times and half a time? I know that it's a reference to Daniel 7 and 12. I know that most scholars see it as describing a year, two years, and half a year, which is three and a half years, or the 1,260 days that was mentioned earlier. I know that that equals 42 months, and the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for about 42 years. There's probably a connection there. I know all that, but I'm not sure of what it means or signifies yet. I'm also unsure whether the woman represents God's people as a whole or Israel specifically. So, is this text promising some kind of special protection for God's people of Israel, the Jewish people, or does it it emphasize the continuity of God's people in both Israel and the church? Uh, I'm also uncertain about the meaning of the earth swallowing the dragon's flood. I, I mention all that not to create doubt or uncertainty into you, but to show you that we can allow for, I don't know. Did you know your pastor can say that? Uh, Did you know you can say that? Uh, In fact, it's, it's the adolescent who stands up and says, I understand everything. I know this. And it's only when we grow up a little bit and we realize, oh, there's a whole lot that I don't know. I'm still learning. Remember what we said early on. Because Revelation is the culmination of the Scriptures, we need to develop this instinct that if we don't understand something, i got to read my Bible more. I need to read the first 65 books of the Bible before I come back to this one, and maybe I'll have some more light and clarity here. I need to read it again and again, meditate on it, reflect on the threads that run throughout the story. And then we do this in community, so if you have insights, I'd appreciate hearing them as we work together to understand the Bible and do it together. That's why city groups are so important for us to discuss the Bible together. But we never master the Word of God. We are mastered by it. Admitting we don't know it all, allowing room for conversation and questions and humble faith. But getting back to what is clear, remember the main question that I asked you to keep in mind as we read this. What is our role in the story of the Bible? Now that we've experienced Revelation 12's epic fantasy retelling of the biblical story, I think we can summarize what our role is in two ways. First, Christians are victors and conquerors by the power of Jesus's death and resurrection. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. We have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We worship the Lamb who was slain, and in His suffering in the moment when it looked like the dragon devoured the child, that is when we find our victory, not in ourselves, But in the power of Jesus, the child who could not be contained, the child who was slain but then rose again because death could not hold him, even in the shame of the cross, we are given the glory of Jesus over the serpent. And even if our enemy were to kill us, the blood of martyrs shows not the triumph of Satan, but the triumph of the saints. So we worship the God who died and then defeated death. Jesus washed away our sins in His precious blood, and for such a great salvation, there's no threat in death anymore. The enemy can harm you, but he can't annihilate you. And so, very practically, this means we should have no fear of the fearsome dragon. As you read it, you get a, a pit of dread whenever he appears, either um, forcefully, you know, obviously in the biblical storyline or behind the scenes. We get a pit that drops in our stomach whenever it feels like. Sometimes the world is out of our control. Maybe there's more evil than good. Maybe evil is winning. The dragon is as good as dead. So what would change about your spiritual life is you, is if you lived like you already had victory over sin and Death? And the enemy itself, victory in Jesus. How would that change the way that you pray about that indwelling sin that you just can't seem to shake? How would that change the way that you pray about our city, our state, our nation, our world? As though we already had victory. How would that change the way that you hope? the way that you long for final victory. Revelation 12 leads us to a posture of joy because we are victorious and conquerors, and yet you have to balance it with this second truth. Christians are exiles in the wilderness, still pursued but also protected and nourished. You have to have both of these. If you lean too hard into the victory side of things, then you're going to be very disillusioned when you notice sin still within yourself, when you notice evil in the world, when you suffer. You won't be equipped to handle that because the only category for you will be victory. And yet, if you lean too far into the other side, into the exile, into the wandering, into the waiting, into the suffering side of things, then you're underemphasizing the fact that Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. The final victory, you have to read, be able to read the words of verse 10 and say, yes, I do have victory now, and yet I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the final victory. Let's talk about our identity as exiles. We're going to hit on this theme a whole lot more in the new year as we study the book of First Peter. God's people are a wilderness people, a wandering people, not at home in this hostile world, but also not abandoning this world. The wilderness is a place of danger, especially when we have a mortally wounded and extremely angry dragon in pursuit. And yet throughout the Bible, over and over again, God brings people from their place of comfort and safety and brings them out to the wilderness. Why? Because in that place of danger, we are wholly reliant on God, and we see more His protective and nourishing nature for us, His salvation for us. When we are under attack by the enemy, God will provide for his servants. He is the rescuer, He is the hiding place. He is the one who parted the waters and showed his way a people through them. So there's a need for sobriety when we think about our world, when we think about the enemy, and yet there's no need for despair. Yes, we're in serious conflict with a serious enemy, and yes, the conflict is still ongoing, but remember that our enemy is a defeated foe, that our salvation is a settled certainty, that our victory is through the blood of Jesus and the gospel. So what do we do with this? What do we do when we're caught in the tension of, I'm a victor and I'm in exile? Verse 17 tells us what to do. We are to keep the commandments of God, and we're to hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're to obey Jesus, and we're to cling to His gospel. To put it bluntly, we're supposed to keep living as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I I hope you believe in the offer of eternal life in Jesus. You will be saved. You won't have to wander in the wilderness alone without protection. As Christians, we are called to walk the path of the cross in the power of the resurrection. So let me ask you this, Christian. How do you resist the enemy? There may be kind of grandiose scenes that come to mind. Maybe you've been scarred by watching The Exorcist or something like that, you know, whatever category of demonic. What does it look like to resist the enemy? It's remarkably ordinary. It looks like loving God and loving your neighbor, it looks like forgiving the one who sins against you. It looks like resisting temptation no matter how alluring and attractive it is. It looks like resisting lies and gossip because that's the way of our enemy and instead speaking truth, because that's the way of Jesus. It looks like giving generously to the poor. It looks like reading the Bible and talking with our Father in prayer. It looks like us rejecting sin, relying on God's Spirit to create fruit in us. It looks like growing as a disciple, as a worshiper, family, servant, witness, prayer, and learner. It looks like declaring, displaying, and delighting in the gospel. Or as Jesus said before He ascended to the throne, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and here's the protective wing for you, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are characters in the story of the Bible, except unlike most characters in most stories, We actually know how it's going to end. Jesus will return. Next week we're going to look at Revelation 19 where we'll see that this enemy will come to a final end. When the king comes back, he will make all things new. But we are waiting. We are waiting. We are waiting and waiting and waiting for that new creation. We are wandering in the wilderness, but we're sustained by God. So in the first advent... Jesus came to fulfill the promises of God's people, but in the second advent, the risen Jesus will finish our story. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, would you give us eyes to see our place in the story? We are not passive observers. We are in this. And what You call for us is simply to follow Jesus, to do all the things that Christians do, because we have been saved by the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and now we follow His words and obey His commands. Father, I pray that You would give us all a sense of victory and a sense of our exile, that You would help us to hold these things in tension, that You would help us to live now and wait for eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.